Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Vessalatu vesselam. Ala abdillahi ve rasulihi nebiyyine Muhammed. Ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ecma'in. Amma ba'd. So inşallah Teala We are going to continue the poem and we're continuing from line number 20 inshallah. وَبَعْدَ خَمْسٍ وَثَلَاثِينَ حَضَرْ بُنْيَانَ بَيْتِ اللَّهِ لَمَّا أَنْدَثَرْ The English translation that we have for this is At 35 he participated in rebuilding the house of Allah after its dilapidation. So this refers to 35 years of age, not 35 years relating to some other issue or hijrah or something like that. This is relating to his age, salawatullahi wasalamu alayhi. 35 years old, he participated in rebuilding the house of Allah. The Kaaba was destroyed or was damaged by uh, rain and flooding, which caused its foundations to crumble. And so it required to be built from new. It wasn't the case that it just needed some repairs. It needed to be completely taken down and completely built from, from new. And that's, you know, on a side point, that gives you a benefit. Something you can explain to non-Muslims because they often have a lot of confusion around the Kaaba. Is that the Kaaba is an ordinary building. It's the most sacred building in the world, but it's still a, it's, it's a masjid. It's a building. It's not uh, some idol that is worshipped. It's not something that is... The, a, uh, where, where the Muslims believe that Allah resides Ta'ala Allah and thalik and he, this is a masjid, it's a mosque and it's a building and so a lot of non-Muslims find this very confusing because they can't understand why the Muslims focus upon the Kaaba but we say that the Kaaba first of all is the first house of worship to have been built. Indeed, the first house of worship that was put for mankind was the one in Makkah. And it's a focal point which unites the Muslims. It's a focal point. So it's, a, it's a, a way to unify the Muslims in a single direction. And that's not unique to Islam. That's not unique to Islam. Allah tells us in Surah Al-Baqarah regarding the Qibla that every nation had a Qibla. Every nation had a direction that they faced unanimously in prayer. And until fairly recently, and even maybe today in some levels of Jerusalem or in some levels of Judaism, 
But definitely, traditionally, both Jews and Christians faced Jerusalem in prayer. So it's not something unique, but the reason I explain this is because it's beneficial for you when you're talking to the non-Muslims. And a lot of you, if you talk to non-Muslims regularly about Islam, you'll find that a lot of them will bring this issue up. Why do you worship the Kaaba? Why do you go around the Kaaba? <clears throat> Why do you kiss the black stone? Sheikh Ibn Thaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, had an amazing answer to this question yani, about why you, you know, why do you go around the Kaaba and you kiss the black stone and so on. He quoted a line of poetry from a poet known as Majnoon Layla, the one who went insane because of a girl called Layla. He said, roughly speaking, if I can remember it, مَرَضْتُ بِالْدِيَارِ دِيَارِ لَيْلَ أُقَبِّلُ ذَا الْجِدَارَ وَذَا الْجِدَارَ مَا حُبَّ الْدِيَارِ شَغَفَنَّ قَلْبِي وَلَكِنْ حُبَّ مَنْ سَكَنَ الْدِيَارَ Roughly, don't quote me on that, but that's roughly what it is. The poet, he said, I came by the house, the house of Layla, kissing the walls, and kissing this wall and this wall. It's not the love of the house that has overcome my heart, but the love of the one who lives in the house. This poet wrote about a girl that he was obsessed with. But the point is, he loved that girl so much that he used to kiss the house that she lived in. And Sheikh Muthaymin rahimahullah ta'ala answered this question for the one who asks, why you Muslims keep going around and kissing the black stone? It's not the stone. It's not the stone that has yani, pulled us towards it. But it's the love of the one who sent down the stone. And that is a Yani one way of explaining to people <coughs> the significance of these rituals and these acts of worship that we do it's not because we love the bricks that were put down there that wherever those bricks were made and that cover wherever that you know cotton or silk came from it's not the love of those material items that makes us go around and honor that building. But it's the love of the one who legislated us to do that and commanded us to do that. So that's an important distinction. And it also shows you, uh, as a side benefit from that, you can extrapolate and benefit. Uh, when you see the Muslims fighting each other around the Kaaba for the sake of touching one of the stones that and Allah only knows where did the piece where did that brick come from which country or which land and they're just fighting each other to touch this any piece of cement and it shows you how wrong that is 
because the barakah of this place it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not from cement that was maybe made in you know I don't know dammam or something it, it comes from the barakah that Allah azawajal put in it and it comes from obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so fighting over each other and kicking each other and pushing each other for the sake of touching a any piece of cement or a piece of stone and then even with the black stone for the sake of touching a stone like one of the sahaba said you're nothing but a stone you're nothing but a stone and if it were not for the fact that I saw the messenger of Allah kiss you I would never have kissed you look at the aqidah of the sahaba the stone came from Jannah he says you're nothing you're nothing to me the only reason I'm here with you is because the Prophet ﷺ did what I'm doing. So you see this, the way that the Muslims leave the obedience to Allah They leave their prayers, they leave the obedience to Allah and then they try to push each other and kick each other and pull each other for the sake of touching a brick. And this is a huge mistake. Because the barakah and the, the, the goodness in that is from what Allah legislated, obedience to Allah and following the sunnah of the Prophet That's where the good is. And so we advise the brothers that when they go to the Kaaba, not to any, get involved in this. And all of us sometimes fall into it, even this hajj when I went. And he, like, you know, you get drawn to like... Let, Okay, let me go and see But at the end of the day ultimately For you to do your obedience to Allah And do your tawaf properly Without hurting anyone Without getting hurt And for you to you know, pray your prayers properly With khushu' Is far more beloved to Allah Than for you to any, Touch a piece of cloth And that's not our religion Our religion is not like that any, That any, touching a piece of cloth That's like the that's the intention behind your religion Or touching a piece of stone No, your intention is a tawheed wal The worship of Allah alone And following the sunnah of the Prophet So Quraysh began to rebuild the Kaaba From new And the Prophet participated in that Because the foundations of the Kaaba were damaged by the water And they had, you know, worn away And so it was in danger of collapse So they had to build it from new And the Prophet ﷺ participated in that And there was a particular event that happened Within that, that the poet is going to go on to mention وَحَكَّمُوهُ وَرَضُوا بِمَا حَكَمْ فِي وَضْعِ ذَاكَ الْحَجَرِ الْأَسْوَدِ ثَمْ There was a great, and as you know how the people were in the time of Jahiliyyah, before Islam, they were in a great deal of argumentation, there were wars, there were, wars would go on for a hundred years because somebody insulted someone, yani. Or somebody, like, you know, did something to annoy somebody. There would be like war, wars and tribal fighting and killing and the shedding of blood. 
And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, do not go back after me to be like the disbelievers, striking the necks of one another. And that doesn't mean that if you strike someone's neck, you become kafir. But that means that do not become like the kuffar. Do not start to go back to how you were in the time of jahiliyyah, striking the necks of one another. So what happened is that they differed over and generally each major tribe of sub-tribe of Quraysh had taken responsibility for one part of the Kaaba. But obviously the last part of the Kaaba to be fitted into place is the black stone. And this is where they began to disagree with each other severely. And it got to the point where there was going to be a war breakout over who was going to put in the black stone. And so one of them said, or they agreed among each other, that the first person to enter into the masjid at that time would be the judge, would be made the judge between them as to which of the sub-tribes were to put that stone in place. Uh, this has another benefit. And this has another benefit, <coughs> which is that we understand from this that Quraysh used to believe in Allah Azza wa Jal and they used to honor what Allah loves to be honored. And that tells you that just believing that the Kaaba <coughs> just believing that the Kaaba is, a, a, is, is, is a, the most honorable place of worship, just believing that Allah commanded for it to be built just believing that the black stone came from Jannah, this doesn't make you a Muslim. These are non-Muslims from Quraysh. And they're fighting over the honor and the, 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 the barakah of the black stone. <clears throat> and that shows us that they were not people who had rejected Allah completely. They were not people who had rejected Allah completely. They were people who believed in Allah and believed in many of the sha'air of Allah, the, the sacred objects and rituals that Allah has sent down. They performed the hajj. They used to make dua to Allah. At times, they did acts of <coughs> they did acts of worship to get near to Allah they sacrificed and so on but that didn't make them a muslim because what makes you a muslim is doing those things for Allah alone worshiping Allah alone that's what makes you a muslim the fact you believe in Allah you believe 
in the Kaaba, you believe in the virtue of the black stone, you pray there, you make dua there, doesn't make you a Muslim at all. But what makes you a Muslim is to do that for Allah alone. So Quraysh agreed to arbitrate or to take as an arbitrator whoever came through that passage or whoever came into the masjid and the person that came in was our prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam at the age of 35 so before prophethood by five years he sallallahu alaihi wasallam was made the arbitrator between the tribes of Quraysh. And the situation is extremely, extremely volatile to the point where it could easily be the cause of a war that might last tens of or even hundreds of years. Which tribe is he going to choose? Is he going to favor his own? Is he going to favor the closest branch of them to him? Is he going to show his favoritism for one over the other? And it's well known that what he did is he commanded for a piece of cloth to be brought and for the heads of the four tribes to hold each corner and for the stone to be placed in the middle. And so collectively, they were able to raise the stone to its place and the Prophet ﷺ pushed it in with his own hands salawatullahi wa salamuhu the translation of this line of poetry in the English uh, copy we have they appointed him to arbitrate and accepted his solution for putting the black stone into place then we continue inshallah with the stage of prophethood wa ba'da aami arba'ina ursila في يوم الاثنين يقينا فانقلا said after 40 years ursila يعني he was sent as a rasul he was sent as a rasul and some of the brothers asked the question what is the difference between a rasul and a nabi the reality of this is that it's not an easy question to answer and the ulama differ over it immensely from them are those who say there is no difference from them are those who say one thing and those who say the other but the mashhur i'm not going to say the rajah that the the correct one but the well-known opinion is that a prophet is a one or a rasul better a messenger a rasul a messenger is one who is sent with a new sharia a new set of laws and a prophet a nabi is one who conveys from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and someone who conveys what Allah Azza wa Jal has revealed to him. And from a naba what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to him. What Allah has revealed to him, 
he conveys the revelation or he conveys what Allah has given to him, this is a, a, a Nabi. So it's not necessary that a Nabi should come with a new legislation. But every Rasul in that case is a Nabi, but not every Nabi is a Rasul. This is the well-known opinion, but in reality, all of them have issues with them. And all of them have criticisms over certain ahadith, certain ayat, where you say it doesn't quite match up here. And that's why some of the scholars said there is no difference, but even this has an issue with it. So, in general, we're going to take the word Rasul to refer to a prophet who was given, a Nabi who was given a new Sharia. And that's what happened to the Prophet ﷺ. He was given a new Sharia. He wasn't told to preach the Torah and the Injil. He was given a new revelation. If you look at, for example, Sulaiman, Sulaiman was not given a new revelation. He had the Torah and from what was given to Dawood from the Zabur. He wasn't given anything new. <coughs> if you look at Yahya, he wasn't given anything new. You look at different prophets along the, along the time, Yusha, Bannun, alayhim salatu wassalam, Yusha wasn't given anything new, a new book. He was simply told to convey the message from Allah based on the revelation. That doesn't mean he didn't get revelation. Every prophet got revelation. But he didn't get a new set of laws. So according to this, the Nabi is the one who gets revelation, and that includes both. And the Rasul is a special category of Nabi who not only gets revelation, but also gets a new book. And that's the mashhur. That's the well-known opinion regarding it. So the Prophet ﷺ became a Rasul. And he became a Nabi. Because his companions used to call him Nabiullah and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Allah called him both. Ya ayyuhan Nabi, O Prophet. And he called him Rasulullah. So after 40 years, the Prophet ﷺ was sent as a mercy to mankind and as a bashir and a nadir. And this is really important because this is the essence of da'wah. The essence of da'wah. The Prophet ﷺ was sent bashiran wa nadira. He was sent as a bringer of glad tidings and as a bringer of warnings, a warner. He wasn't just sent to tell people about Jannah and he wasn't just sent to warn people about Jahannam with the carrot and the stick. And that's how your da'wah should be. Should not be necessarily completely on the on al-indhar uh, and, and so on. And that you're warning people and you're telling people about the bad things. Nor should it just be inviting them to Jannah. But as the Prophet ﷺ was sent, Bashiran wa Nadira, with both. You give the people glad tidings of paradise if they obey Allah, and you 
warn them of the hellfire if they disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Abbas said the Prophet was sent at 40 years old. He was appointed as a messenger of Allah at 40 years old. And he stayed in Makkah for 13 years while revelation was being revealed to him. Then he was commanded to make hijrah and he made hijrah for 10 years and he died when he was at the age of 63. Is from Ibn Abbas. And if Yom al Ithnain on a Monday, this was the day that the Prophet was made a messenger on a Monday. And also, it's the day that he was born on. And we're going to talk about other significant events that happened on a Monday. And so that would make a Monday have a significance in the sight of Allah Azza wa Jal. And in fact, after Yawm al-Jumu'ah, the Friday, it seems like a Monday has the most significance uh, of the days of the week. And Allah knows best. Uh, and from this, some of the scholars said uh, that fasting on a Monday is, mo if you can't fast Monday and Thursday, then some of them said that fasting on a Monday is more deserving than fasting on a Thursday if you can't do both. So Monday has a virtue, as we're going to hear. But the greatest virtue of all of the days of the week is a Friday, and that's authentically reported from the Prophet ﷺ, that the best of the days of the week is a Friday. And lots of things happen on a Friday, the day that Adam was created the day that he was sent down to earth and so on the day of judgment so many and you have so many uh, events that happened also and from the other days of the week that have significance is a thursday because the deeds are shown and raised to allah and shown to allah on a monday and a thursday and that's why the prophet said that i love for my deeds to be presented to allah while i'm fasting the fasting on the Monday and the Thursday. And there is no doubt about this. It's narrated from the Messenger of Allah in Sahih Muslim that he said about a Monday, that is the day that I was born on and that is the day that I was sent or he said that is the day that the Qur'an was first, the first piece of the Qur'an was given to me. في رمضان أو ربيع الأول وسورة وسورة قرأ أول المنزل in رمضان أو ربيع الأول so here the poet is mentioning the difference of opinion with regard to whether this happened in رمضان or whether it happened in ربيع الأول Ibn al-Qayyim said in Zad al-Ma'ad there is no difference of opinion that he was made a prophet on a Monday but the difference is in the month in which it happened 
it is said after eight days of Rabi'ul Awwal, which would match what? Eight days of Rabi'ul Awwal would match the strongest opinion with regard to the day the Prophet ﷺ was born. The 41st year of Amal Fil, I need the 41st year after the year of the elephant, because the year of the elephant, the Prophet was born. So 41 years had gone by, he was 40 years old. And this is the opinion of the majority, Ibn Qayyim says. This is the opinion of the majority that it was in Rabi' al Awwal. And it said that it was in Ramadan. And they gave the evidence for this, the statement of Allah, Ramadan, Quran. The month of Ramadan in which the Quran was revealed. And they said, and the others said that the meaning of this, the Quran was sent down in Ramadan. The Quran was sent down in Ramadan. But that the revelation of the Quran began in Rabi al Awwal. That is the opinion of the majority. In the first ayah to be given to the Prophet was given to him on the 8th of Rabi'ul Awwal. And others used the ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah. They said, no. Quran. This means that, the, that this was, it was during Ramadan. And the first group said the Quran was sent in Ramadan in one go on Laylatul Qadr. And then it was sent in different months to the Prophet ﷺ according to what was needed. And Allah knows best. Ibn Qayyim seems to prefer the opinion that it was Rabi'ul Awwal. وَسُورَةُ تُقْرَأْ أَوَّلُ الْمُنَزَّلِ And the surah Iqra' The surah Iqra' meaning Iqra' بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقْ Surah Al-Alaq was the first to be revealed to the Prophet wasallam. As is reported in Bukhari and Muslim from the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha. Thumma al-wudu'a wa-salata allamah Jibreelu wa hiya rak'atani muhkamah Then the wudu' and the prayer was taught to him by Jibreel and they were two raka'as. Uh, let's see what they say in the, uh, in the English version. Uh, two complete units of prayer. In the beginning of the prophethood, the Prophet ﷺ, the prayer was two raka'at. was taught to the Prophet ﷺ. Ibn Ishaq narrates that the Prophet ﷺ saw Jibreel ﷺ making wudu and watched him. Then the Prophet ﷺ made wudu like he saw Jibreel make wudu. Then Jibreel stood and led him in the prayer and the Prophet 
then prayed, uh, uh, and the Prophet ﷺ prayed behind Jibreel or with Jibreel, and with Jibreel as the Imam to teach him how to pray. Then Jibreel left. This is narrated by Ibn Ishaq. This is important because it tells us the status of the prayer. The prayer at this point had not been made an obligation to the wider uh, any, or the Prophet ﷺ at this point had not been commanded himself to spread the message to the wider group of people. And this is important as well because it tells you that as a da'iyah, as a person giving da'wah, you have to correct yourself before you correct other people. And so the, you have to learn before you teach. So the Prophet ﷺ here is learning how to make wudu and how to pray. And the prayer is two rak'ah. Then Ibn Ishaq continues to narrate the Messenger of Allah went to Khadija. And he made wudu in front of her to show her how to make wudu for the prayer as he saw Jibreel doing. So she made wudu like the Messenger of Allah made wudu. Then the Prophet led her in prayer as Jibreel led him in prayer. However, this hadith or this narration is narrated by Ibn Ishaq and it doesn't have a solid chain of narration. So what we say about it is, uh, like as suhaili he said, this hadith is something that is well narrated in the seerah. But this kind of narration cannot be made a fundamental upon which we base our sharia. It was narrated with a chain of narration from Zayd ibn Haritha from the Prophet ﷺ, except that this hadith was narrated by Abdullah ibn Lahi'ah, uh, and Abdullah ibn Lahi'ah, as you know, is weak in many circumstances unless he's narrated from by particular individuals. Abdullah ibn Lahi'ah uh, is weak in many of his narrations. So what that tells you is that this narration of Jibreel and the wudu is not something you can base your sharia upon. But there is a benefit in it, and that is that when we take a new Muslim, what is the first thing we do after we explain to them the basics of their aqidah and the worship of Allah We teach them how to make wudu by showing them, and we take them to the masjid to pray the salah behind the imam. And this is something really important because if they pray behind the imam they will learn quickly whereas if you give them a book and say follow this follow this it's hard for them you say to them pray behind the imam it's easy for them so this is the basic principle that we follow with regard to new muslims as for this hadith it has another wording, as we said, from Zayd ibn Haritha, and Sheikh al-Albani said it is sahih. And the wording is that Jibreel came to him in the beginning of the time of revelation and taught him wudu and prayer. So when the Prophet وسلم, uh, or when Jibreel had finished making wudu, the Prophet 
uh, oh, when he had finished making wudu, uh, he took a, uh, a handful of water and he splashed it over his, uh, uh, over his private parts. And this hadith, it has Ibn Lahira in it, however, it has some supporting narrations and Shaykh al-Albani said that this hadith is in uh, a silsila, uh, he put it in a silsila al-Sahihah. Uh, so the point is that this general idea that the Prophet وسلم, the full narration of the Prophet وسلم, praying behind Jibreel and then teaching Khadija and praying, Khadija praying behind him, it's not narrated uh, with an authentic chain of narration. However, uh, it seems that at least the concept of praying, at least the concept of learning to pray at the very beginning of Islam and, and to make wudu, this is something which we can and we can establish inshallah and we can implement for the new Muslims. ثُمَّ مَضَتْ عِشْرُونَ يَوْمًا كَامِلَةً فَرَمَتِ الْجِنُّ then after 20 days, 20 full days, the jinn, and the meaning of this is not all of the jinn, the jinn that were sneaking, they used to, we used to, go up to the heavens and listen to the commands being given to the angels and as we know then they used to descend upon the fortune tellers and so on and the fortune teller would be believed because the jinn used to listen to the commands that were being given to the angels they were attacked by shooting stars and this is an event that happened close to the sending of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as Allah said وَأَنَّ لَمَسْنَ السَّمَاءَ فَوَجَدَنَاهَا مُلِئَتْ حَرَسًا شَدِيدًا وَشُهُبًا We have gone to the heavens and found it full of strong gods and fiery and shooting stars. And the situation changed when the Prophet ﷺ was sent. The situation changed. Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, the scholars of Sirah said, Quraysh saw the stars <coughs> shooting, and many, many, many shooting stars. After 20 days, of the Prophet ﷺ being sent as a messenger. And Imam, uh, Imam Tirmidhi and others narrated from Ibn Abbas that he said that the jinn used to rise up to the heavens to listen to the revelation. And when they would hear a statement, they would put nine more with it. When they would hear one word, they would put nine more with it. <coughs> In some of the narrations, it mentions 99 and 100. They would put nine more with it. As for this one word, it would be the truth. And as for the nine words they would add, it would be falsehood. When the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was sent 
They were stopped from the place that they used to sit and listen. Prevented from it. So they mentioned this to Iblis. And the stars never used to shoot them before. So Iblis said to them, this is only because of something that has happened on the earth. And the reason this has happened to you, they came to Iblis to complain. They came to Iblis to complain. Why is it that we're no longer able to sneak the... Uh, any, uh, to catch an ear or to, to put an ear to be able to catch some words from the revelation of Allah why are we not able to do that anymore and Iblis said to them this is because of something that has happened on the earth so he sent out his soldiers and they found the messenger of Allah وسلم, standing in prayer between two mountains he said, I think he said in Makkah, yani Ibn Abbas, or the narrator from Ibn Abbas said, I, I think he said, and yani the narrator from Ibn Abbas, he said, I think Ibn Abbas said in Makkah. So they came to him, and yani they came back to Iblis. So they informed Iblis. And Iblis said, this is the event that, I, that has happened on the earth. And this is what has happened on the earth that has made it such that you are no longer able to snatch some of the revelation and to mix it up with lies and to bring it to the fortune tellers and so on. I don't know, it's worth researching whether Ibn Abbas saying one in ten and I think this is the case refers to Yani one true word in ten refers to what was before the Prophet ﷺ. and as for what is after the Prophet ﷺ, uh, then we have the narration of this one in a hundred and they're chased by the shooting star which may hit them or may not so it hasn't completely completely stopped that the fortune teller receives information from the jinn but they are chased by shooting stars and they are uh, I mean, the, the amount that they are able to gather is much, much, much uh, reduced. That's what appears to be from the hadith. But we should really check the explanation of that to see if that is the case. Because the Prophet ﷺ explained this after his prophethood. Uh, and Allah knows best. ثم دعا في أربع الأعوام then he began giving da'wah in the fourth year. So in the beginning, who became Muslim? Of course the Prophet was made a messenger. Who became Muslim? Khadija radiallahu anha. The Prophet was not told to give this message to everyone. He was not told to proclaim it. So the people personally that he knew uh, Khadija uh, radiallahu anha is one example because the Prophet in the first four years gave da'wah in secret in the first four years he gave da'wah in secret and the fact that many of the companions didn't 
proclaim their Islam in the beginning is an evidence for the permissibility of concealing your Islamic faith in the beginning when you first become Muslim if that would prevent you from a harm. But the Prophet was simply not commanded to proclaim to the people because this requires a level of being prepared that Allah gave the Prophet over four years. And over a period of four years, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prepared the Prophet to give da'wah openly. And there's no doubt that giving da'wah openly, <coughs> there's no doubt <coughs> that giving da'wah openly is something which is difficult and requires a lot of sabr and <coughs> patience and knowledge which is built up over time. And this shows you the falsehood of those people who and they tell someone who doesn't have any knowledge to stand up and give da'wah, for example. Rather you, da'wah is something you grow into. Yes, a new Muslim may become Muslim on the first day and may tell about Islam what they have researched from the knowledge they have gained. They tell their parents, they tell their family, their friends. But in terms of publicly giving da'wah requires you to have knowledge. So the Prophet ﷺ gave da'wah in secret. Allah gave him the knowledge, he gave da'wah in secret. And he prepared him for the ability and the patience to be able to give da'wah openly. So Ibn Qayyim said, Rahimullah ta'ala in Zadul Ma'ad, the Prophet remained after that, and after his, in the year he became a prophet, three years, and four years in total, calling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in secret. In secret. So we know that and from among the people who had become and he Muslim, as we said, uh, Khadija, Abu Bakr, radiallahu an, uh, radiallahu an huma, Ali, radiallahu an, and this small number of people, and more than that, but it's not a big number of people. Then Allah Azzawajal revealed in Surah Al-Hijr, فَصْدَعْ بِمَا تُؤْمَرْ وَأَعْرِضْ عَنِ الْمُشْرِكِينَ Allah Azzawajal revealed for him to speak out about what he had being commanded and turn away from the polytheists. So the Prophet ﷺ began to speak about the da'wah openly. And his people showed him that enmity that is famous, and that famous enmity against him. And they began to verbally abuse him and physically and he abused the Muslims. All of this happened after the Prophet ﷺ was commanded to give da'wah openly. And we know any the famous narration in this regard when the Prophet ﷺ stood on Safa 
and he called his people in such a way that the enemy is approaching. And in the way of the one who would call his people when the enemy were approaching. So they gathered for him because they trusted him. They knew of his trustworthiness and his truthfulness. They, they, they trusted him. So they gathered for him. And the Prophet ﷺ said to them, there are different wordings and narrations, but we know this one, that the Prophet ﷺ said to them that if I were to tell you that there was an army behind this mountain prepared to attack you, would you believe me? They said, yes. The Prophet ﷺ said, then I am here to warn you of a punishment which is near. And then this famous uh, story of Abu Lahab uh, and Abu Lahab saying to him is, have you gathered us for this tabban lak? And may you be disgraced, may you be dishonored that you gathered us here for this to tell us that Allah is going to punish us if we don't worship him alone. You have gathered us for this tabban lak. And Allah revealed, tabbat yada abi lahabin wa tab. And so on. But the main thing is to realize that the punishment for the Muslims became severe. The punishment for the Muslims became very, very severe. Uh, and particularly upon those who did not have protection for whatever reason. It's a very tribal society. Society is very based on tribes. It's very based on you know, people uh, having agreements of protection from one another. And that is why when, for example, Hamza uh, an, and then shortly after Umar, an, they became Muslim and the situation changed considerably. And the protection that was given to the Prophet وسلم, by Abu Talib, it's all very significant because it's a very tribal society. If you have someone in your tribe that is and he protecting you or giving you some sort of patronage or protection, yani some sort of, sort of uh, cover, then those people, they suffered a lot, but they suffered less than those people who had none, like the slaves. And like, uh, for example, uh, the likes of Bilal radiallahu uh, and, and, uh, and those who were slaves, and those people who had no links, tribal links to Mecca, not just the slaves, people who came from and they had no family and tribal links in Makkah because they had nobody who was going to stand up for them. And so the torture was really quite severe. And we know from various of the Sahaba who endured torture, some of them at the hands of their own family. We know the famous hadith with regard to the family of Yasir that they used to be and the first martyr in Islam, Sumayya, uh, radiallahu anha, that the family of Yasir were tortured horrendously because of Islam. And the Prophet ﷺ was unable to do anything for them. The only thing he was able to do is to say to them, Sabran ala Yasir, fa'inna jannah. Be patient, O family of Yasir, because your final destination is Jannah. And there's no doubt that the, I need the torture, the Muslims, some of them who were, were tortured by their own family members, like Mus'ab ibn Umair, who was imprisoned 
and shackled by his own mother. His mother who people used to say nobody, no child, no young man in Makkah has ever had parents that love him as much as Mus'ab ibn Umair. They gave him everything, they doted on him, they spoiled him. And when he became Muslim, his own mother had him and he picked up by some guys and shackled in the, you know, shackled and chained in his own home. And it got to the point, and you remember the narration we mentioned in Friday Night Reflections of the, the companion, it's, it's escaped me the name of the companion now, but who said, That he was, and the one who said that Hamza was killed and he was better than me, and Musa'ab ibn Umair was killed and he was better than me. One of the Ashar al Mubashirin of the Jannah. I, don't, I, I want to say, but I don't remember, so I'm not going to say, I'll, I will check the narration. Yani. Uh, in any case, and then he said that I remember, and he remembers the time. When the companions, they had nothing to eat except the leaves of, I mean, the leaves of trees. They were suffering so much that they had nothing to eat except just to chew on the leaves, just to give the a psychological, uh, like some sort of psychological sort of feeling of eating. And their lips were, became, you know, they became chapped and cut, uh, and they became in a terrible situation after the Prophet ﷺ gave that da'wah in the open. And now you see the hikmah in the fact that Allah left four years of secret da'wah to allow the Muslims a time to develop themselves. The Prophet ﷺ is different. Of course, he ha Allah is, is developing him uh, day by day with revelation. But Allah it's not it's not strange for the Prophets in one night to gain everything that they need or in one moment to gain everything that they need it wouldn't be something strange but especially for the rest of the Muslims to be given time to adjust to this situation and to build their iman for what is going to come this big test that's going to come and this test it came and we now come on to the author talking about the topic of the hijrah وَرَابِعٌ مِّنَ النِّسَاءِ وَاثْنَا عَشَرٌ مِّنَ الرِّجَالِ الصَّحْبِ كُلٌّ قَدْ هَجَرٌ إلى بلاد الحبش في خامس عام في خامس عام وفيه عادوا ثم عادوا لا ملام. So he goes on to talk about the hijrah, the first hijrah. Four women along with 12 men among the companions all migrated to the lands of Habasha in the fifth year. The same year they returned but went back without blame. So this is regarding the first hijrah and he's starting to explain the second hijrah to Al-Habasha. We know Al-Habasha is a land in Africa, roughly equivalent to Ethiopia now, but probably bigger than that. Maybe uh, there are other countries that would come under that, but roughly 
roughly where Ethiopia is today. And that a number of the companions were given permission by the Prophet ﷺ to make hijrah to Al-Habasha. There were four women and twelve men in the first instance. And the reason they did so is because of a Christian king who was heard to be a fair man, a just man, and a kind person. And so they made hijrah not from the lands of Kufr to the lands of Iman, but from a land of Kufr to a land of Kufr which was less severe. And this is from the types of hijrah. This is from the types of, of hijrah. Of course, Al-Najashi, uh, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, became Muslim. That's a different issue. But in the first instance, their hijrah was not from Dar al-Kufr to Dar al-Iman. Their hijrah was from Dar al-Kufr to a Dar which was better and less harmful for them than the first one. And this is one of the t- two types of hijrah. Because there is a hijrah of from Dar al-Kufr to Dar al-Iman, from the place of disbelief to a place of Iman, any from a non-Muslim to a Muslim country. And there is a hijrah from a place of kufr to a place of kufr which is less severe than the one that you came from. The first number of the muhajirin, the first hijrah to Habsha, they were four women and twelve men. And this happened in the fifth year, in the fifth year, after the sending of the Prophet ﷺ. Because remember, we only use the Hijrah years after Makkah. And Hijrah years refer to after Makkah. So when you hear the, the, the Hijrah to Habasha in the fifth year, it's not the fifth year after the Hijrah, it's the fifth year after the sending of the Prophet ﷺ, the Mab'ath of the Prophet ﷺ. And An-Najashi welcomed them and he listened to what they had to say. And indeed, there were some of the people of Quraysh there to try to take him away from that and to convince him otherwise. But Allah opened his heart to Islam. And in the same year, they returned back. In the same year, they came, in the same year, they came back to Mecca. They came back to Mecca because they had received news that Quraysh had become Muslim. And that was because of the ayah at the end of Surah Al-Najm, or the passage, not the ayah, but the set of ayat at the end of Surah Al-Najm, uh, of which Allah said, when this passage of ayat were revealed, it's narrated that Quraysh made sajda. It's narrated that Quraysh made sajda. It said that they made sajda out of extreme fear of what Allah mentioned in the ayah. Because remember, these are people who believe in Allah. 
They are not Muslim, but they have a basic belief in Allah. So then they hear about how Allah destroyed these nations, and they know these nations. These nations are not far away from them. They have seen, when they go to Syria, when they went to Sham, they have seen the, they have passed by nations that Allah destroyed. They've seen what happened to the people of Lut. They've seen what happened to the people of Salih. They've seen what happened uh, to the people in Yemen. They had seen what had happened to these different, different nations and they'd heard of them. And when Allah mentioned how he destroyed them, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala threatened Quraysh with this punishment, it's narrated that Quraysh made sajda when this ayah was revealed. This is the, the famous narration. There is a lot of disagreement on another topic which we'll talk about, uh, uh, which is a, 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 an interesting issue for a research topic. Uh, but uh, in general, the main thing is that they had heard that Quraysh had become Muslim. The sajda, this is a matter of a research topic because there are some complications in it which we'll mention in a moment. But the concept that they had heard that Quraysh had become Muslim is not disputed. And that's why they came back. And when they came back, they found that the situation was even worse than before. It was not as they had imagined. And they were able to go, uh, to go back again. And the, the poet, he mentions this in the next line. He says, ثَلَاثَةٌ هُمْ وَثَمَانُونَ رَجُلٌ he said, the second time, the number was much greater. The second time, there were 83 men. Uh, and he said about the women, so the first part he says The women they were 18 They were 10 and 8 yani 10 and 8 18 So the number in the second hijrah To Al-Habasha increased The situation in Mecca had got worse so now there were 83 men and there were 18 women who went to, to Al-Habasha for the second Hijrah. Now we, we have to stop for a moment and talk about Al-Gharaniq. Because this is, yani, the, this is the, like, the big issue. Yani. The story goes, and people have very strong opinions about this. Uh, regarding the story of Al-Gharaniq. Uh, that when Allah revealed the beginning of Surah Al-Najm, and He revealed, أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّى وَمَنَاتَ الثَّالِثَةَ الْأُخْرَى Have you seen Allat and Al-Uzzah? And Manat, the third, the other one. And these are the gods of Quraysh, Allat and Al-Uzza and Manat, from the gods of Quraysh. The narration is that the shaitan, what's the word, Annie, overtook the, 
or was able to insert an ayah which made Quraysh believe that these gods were acceptable to Allah. And the ayah is something like Tilka uh, I've forgotten the end of it or something like that these are the, the, the three the big intercessors and their intercession it will be accepted by Allah this is uh, a matter of um, disagreement as to whether this event happened and did it happen and could it have happened I think before we start on this, we need to go to an ayah in Surah Al-Hajj. Because the people who, and he rightly said that this hadith is not narrated with a strong narration, there is no uh, proof of this, and so on and so forth, and it was often peddled by the enemies of Islam. Some of the greatest of the enemies of Islam of our time have used this story to criticize and to... and it was the um, yani, oh, many, many individuals, yani, this, this issue of the ayat that the shaitan added to the Qur'an. But to understand this in context, what we have to do is we have to go to uh, an ayah, and I'll get you the reference in Surah Al-Hajj, ayah number 52. Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ مِنْ رَسُولٍ وَلَا نَبِيٍ إِلَّا إِذَا تَمَنَّا أَلْقَ الشَّيْطَانُ فِي أُمْنِيَتِهِ فَيَنْسَخُ اللَّهُ مَا يُلْقِ الشَّيْطَانُ ثُمَّ يُحْكِمُ اللَّهُ آيَاتِهِ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ Allah Azza wa Jal said, We have never sent before you any Rasul, nor any Nabi, Except that when he recited the revelation, the shaitan inserted something into his revelation. So Allah abrogated and he wiped out what the shaitan put in and then Allah Azza wa Jal established the revelation and he made it undoubtable. And Allah is Alimun Hakim. So the first thing we need to say that the whole issue of this story whether it is authentic in the Senate or not, people have said it's mawdu'ah, it's fabricated, it, yani it's used by the enemies of Islam. The asal of the idea that the shaitan could confuse the revelation that was being revealed is mentioned in Surah Al-Hajj, aslan yani, in a way that there is no doubt about. We have never sent a messenger nor a prophet before you except that when he recited the revelation, the shaitan inserted something into his recitation then Allah removes what the shaitan inserted and Allah makes his ayat firm. For us then, don't let this story trouble you in the first place. Sanadan, yani, it's not authentic to the best of my knowledge. Yani. This uh, story of Al-Gharaniq, of the, yani, the three idols that are accepted by Allah. Yani. This story is in the first place not authentic. But even if it were authentic, it would not go outside of what Allah Azza wa had said in Surah Al-Hajj. Which is not that the Prophet ﷺ recited something wrong and then all of Quraysh believed that their idols were okay and then everyone worshipped the idols for 10 years. And No, it's not like that. The shaitan tries to put something in there 
يعني, he, he speaks in a way that يعني, confuses the people to believe it's a part of the revelation but immediately Allah Azza wa Jal Allah removes, abrogates, takes away what the shaitan threw in. And then Allah makes his ayat muhkama, yani no, like you can't, there's no doubt about them. Yani Allah makes it clear. So this story in the first place is not, uh, to the best of my knowledge, authentic, but it should not trouble you in the first place. And some people, this story, wallahi, how many people have gone to atheism on this story? And how many people, wallahi, and how many people have committed, and how many of the enemies of Islam, they repeat this story, and like uh, from them, you know, people like Salman Rushdie, people, and this is like a very, very, very famous and, uh, thing that people throw out all the time. This story of Al-Gharaniq. And it, they, they link it to this element, the return from the Hijrah. That the people returned from the Hijrah because the Shaitan changed the Quran and everyone believed that it was okay to worship idols and that's what made the people return from the Hijrah. Why well, this is not authentic in the first place. But you should not take it outside of what Allah said in Surah Al-Hajj. Which is in the first place Allah said every prophet and messenger had one, at least one instance where the Shaitan was able to throw something into their revelation, then Allah removed it and Allah made his ayat clear and Allah is alimun hakim. Allah knows what is being done and Allah is wise. Everything has a wisdom in it. The research is, or the research topic that is worthwhile doing is, is any part of this story authentic? Any part, any, okay, we know that the version that is peddled by the enemies of Islam is clearly not authentic. But is any part of this story authentic? And is there any proof to link this ayah in Surah Al-Hajj to what happened in the hijrah of the first hijrah of Al-Habasha? This is the interesting research topic. To what level can we stop? At what level can we say that genuinely there was uh, an event that happened like this and to what level can we link it to what happened in the, in the hijrah? Or is it something that happened at a completely different time? And you can look at the tafsir of this ayah in Surah Al-Hajj, and we can maybe come back next week and see what you guys have. Uh, if you guys found anything interesting, you can send it to me by email, and we can just collate the research. Just have a little look. You can read about the story of Al-Gharaniq. I'm sure you guys are mature enough to be able to handle it, inshallah. Um, you can read about it, it's very, very well uh, any reported. And you can read about in the books of Sirah those people who agreed with it, those people who narrated it, and whether there is really any link between the ayah in Surah Al-Hajj and between what happened with the false story of, of Quraysh becoming Muslim at the time of the, first, the, the, yani the end of the first hijrah and the start of the second hijrah. Then the author, or the poet, at the end of the, of the last part of the line I read, and we didn't come to it, he said, ثُمَّ قَدْ أَسْلَمَ فِي السَّادِسِ حَمْزَةُ الْأَسَدِ And then in the sixth year, حَمْزَةُ الْأَسَدِ became Muslim, رَبِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَنْ The paternal uncle of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.
The paternal uncle. Someone asked a question about paternal uncles and, and the trip to Medina the Prophet ﷺ made was to visit his, uh, uh, yeah, he, as we said, yeah, to visit his maternal, his maternal uncles. Yeah. Not his paternal uncles, his maternal uncles. Yeah. Uh, so here, we talk about the Islam of Hamza. The Islam of Hamza is a beautiful story. We're not going to have too much time to go into the full details, but... It's a really beautiful story. We did it for the, for the younger kids, the little kids who come to, on a Saturday to our class, uh, and they, they really enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing it as well. Uh, but Hamza radiallahu an grew up alongside the Prophet sallallahu uh, He was of a very similar age. The two of them were, were of a very similar age, and they grew up together in one house. But Hamza, he was preoccupied by hunting. You know, he was a person, you know, you have some people who they have one thing and that one thing takes over their whole life. Any running or, you know, like, I don't know, playing football or, you know, cricket or whatever. And this just like, or going to the gym or whatever. And this is like their life. Hamza was a person in the beginning before Islam that hunting was his life. To the point that they say for six years, he didn't know a great deal about or pay a great deal of attention to what the Prophet ﷺ was doing. Because he was always outside with a, yani his spear or his arrow and so on, uh, hunting. And he came back from hunting one time and he used to, you know, he was quite proud of himself because, you know, like hunting lions and... You know, he was a brave person and he was a person that Quraysh was scared of. He had a heba, he had a like he had a personality among Quraysh. Uh, and that he he came uh, and uh, there was a a servant girl who met him. She said to him, O Abu Imara, if you knew what Abu Jahl had done to your nephew, today you would be in a different place. Your sha'an today would be sha'anun akhar, and you would have a different outlook. Because at that time, uh, he had, uh, in Abu Jahl, had insulted the Prophet and he with the most filthy and the most evil of words. And so, Hamza, why did he get angry? For Allah? No. He got angry for his nephew, for his tribe. So he came into the Kaaba and he came to a Safa where he saw, or a Marwa, I think a Safa where the, the people were sitting. And uh, he went up to Abu Jahl and he took his spear and he beat him so hard over the head that the blood started to pour down the face of Abu Jahl. Now at this point, there's a problem. Because Hamza hasn't really thought about the consequences of like beating up the, one of the major figures of Quraysh. So the people of Abu Jahl stand up, right now there's going to be a war. Yani they stand up to fight against Hamza and their leader is pouring with blood from his face after Hamza beat him repeatedly over the head. Who stopped the whole thing from escalating? Abu Jahl himself. He said, leave him because in reality, I said about his nephew the most filthy, I, mean, I said the most filthy evil words about his nephew. And let's be, like, basically, 
يعني, he was right يعني like leave him is that the real reason why Abu Jahl said that out of really feeling sorry for what he did no way Abu Jahl knew that Hamza would have taken out a good few of his best people so and he knew that Hamza was furious and at this point during this whole incident Ham, Abu Jahl had said what's the matter with you are you like you know like are you you know your nephew you're following his religion now and Hamza blurted out yes if I'm following his religion who, who, which one of you are going to stop me and it's narrated that Hamza said I'm following my nephew's religion and if any of you want to stop me stand up not surprisingly nobody stood up and uh, Hamza at this point went home but then the anger level this, yani it decreased a bit from Hamza and he realized that there's a problem now because what have I just done I've just changed my religion I just got really really furious and I've blurted out that I've changed my religion and it said that he said how can I go back on my word if I go back on changing my religion now all of my people will say Hamza is you know like he's hot-headed and he doesn't stick to what he said but if I change my religion I've lost my status in the eyes of the people so he went to the Prophet ﷺ in the morning he said didn't sleep in the night and he went to the Prophet ﷺ in the morning and he told him his problem literally he confessed to him the problem like I blurted out if I you know if I go back now and I say that I'm not a Muslim then what's going to happen is the people are going to basically say that Hamza is, is, is hot-headed and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't stick to his guns and so on and he's scared and whatever and if I say that I am a Muslim I have to leave the religion of my forefathers so the Prophet ﷺ repeated some words of da'wah to him reminded him about Allah reminded him about something from the Quran and Hamza declared his Islam with certainty yani Hamza declared his Islam at this point he had become Muslim but he he was like he was unsure he was wavering and this happens Wallah did the Prophet send him away and say you didn't become Muslim for the right reason you didn't have yaqeen you didn't have certainty you didn't know what you were doing go away don't you know now you need to go and be a non-Muslim again no he said look let's just correct it what you did was the right thing but you just need to correct yourself you need to remember Allah so on the words he said he gave Hamza comfort and Hamza became Muslim when Hamza became Muslim, the situation in Makkah completely changed for the Muslims. It doesn't mean that there wasn't torture or oppression, but the situation for the Muslims in terms of their worship became totally different. And immediately or almost immediately after Hamza, Umar became Muslim a few days after. And what happened is they led uh, two columns of the Muslims now you imagine this the Muslims are I mean, they are like in a ghetto they, you know they are living in a ghetto style like they, they have no social ties they, are, they don't appear in front of people they are being tortured and then two rows of the Muslims come out Umar at the front of one Hamza at the front of the other and they walk to the front of the Kaaba, past all of the people of Quraysh, Abu Jahl, these, you know, these major figures of Quraysh, and they just pray. And nobody has the guts to say anything, because with them are Hamza and Umar, uh, 
And Hamza, he went from hunting lions to being a lion. Radiallahu an. Hamza al-Asad. Hamza the lion. And he's the lion of Allah Azza wa Jal. And you can read, inshallah, more about Hamza and his biography and uh, about what happened uh, in terms of his, uh, him uh, being martyred uh, and how that was done by sneaky, yani sneaky behavior. It wasn't, they weren't able to fight against Hamza. Uh, and in fact, in the Battle of Badr, Hamza had killed many of the major, major figures of Quraysh in the Battle of Badr were killed by Hamza. And it became so furious, one family lost an entire generation. In fact, they lost two generations of their family because of Hamza in the Battle of Badr. And one group of the Mushrikeen, uh, they lost, uh, their, I think, two or three sons and the father. All of them from Hamza, one after the other. So they became furious against him and they plotted a plan for an Abyssinian uh, spear thrower who was extremely deadly with throwing a spear that he was given the job that you stay in the tent, you don't fight in Uhud. You sneak out at any opportunity, you kill Hamza, and if you do that, uh, uh, the, uh, one of the, 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 the mushrikat, the female uh, yani, uh, polytheists, she said, I will give you all of the gold that I have. And the one who owned him said to him, he was a slave, he was owned, I will give you your freedom. So he was promised his freedom, and he was promised... All of the gold that this woman had, she was a rich woman, all of her gold and his freedom, in return for not taking part in the battle. He said, don't take part, you might get killed. You stay in the, hidden in the tent. You sneak out in the middle of the battle, you kill Hamza, you come back. And uh, he did that, he hid behind a tree until Hamza had killed many of the mushrikeen in this battle and the Muslims had overcome. And at that point, uh, when the Muslims were just getting back on their feet, uh, he came from behind the tree and he threw the spear into Hamza's uh, stomach. And at this point, Hamza still went towards him. And even in that situation, Hamza went towards him with his sword, but he fell and he was martyred. Uh, and that was very hard upon the Prophet ﷺ. But you can read more about that in the biography of Hamza radiallahu ta'ala an. The poet continues, وَبَعْدَ تِسْعٍ مِنْ سِنِي رِسَالَتِهِ مَاتَ أَبُوْ طَالِبَ ذُو كَفَالَتِهِ وَبَعْدَهُ خَدِيجَةٌ تُوفِيَتْ مِنْ بَعْدِ أَيَّامٍ ثَلَاثَةٍ مَضَتْ And after nine years, From the messengership, I mean the start of the messengership of the Prophet wasallam, the ninth year from Al-Bi'tha, the ninth year after he was sent, Abu Talib, who had been taking care of the Prophet wasallam, he had been his, his, uh, one of the people who offered him protection, despite the fact that he did not become Muslim, Abu Talib uh, had passed away and he passed away as a non-Muslim after having supported the Prophet ﷺ during his da'wah and helped him during his da'wah but he died as a non-Muslim and after him Khadija radiallahu anha passed away after 
three days, only three days after that. It's said that Khadija died before, and it's said that she died after, but the poet took the opinion that she died after, uh, and this is the well-known opinion. And, the, and uh, uh, Ibn, uh, Ibn Kathir, he says in Al-Bidayah wa Nihaya, these two were two complete opposites. Abu Talib died as a disbeliever and Khadija died as a believer. And Ibn Ishaq, he said, Khadija and Abu Talib died in a single year. So the Prophet Sallallahu calamities happened to him one after the other after the other in, the, in this time after the death of Khadija. She was his noble minister who helped him through trials and tribulations and he found tranquility and, and peace with her. And his uncle Abu Talib who was the, one of the biggest supporters and protectors that he had uh, in what he was doing and one of the main people who prevented Quraysh from, from hurting him and two of those things happened at the same time and they caused uh, any, this uh, year of, of calamities which is sometimes known, known as Am al-Huzn the year of sadness because any calamities and trial after trial after trial after trial happened And it's well known with regard to the, the death of Abu Talib an, that on his deathbed the Prophet ﷺ came to him and there were two people from the people of Quraysh and he said, Oh my uncle, say La ilaha illallah, a word by which I can argue your case before Allah. And they said, Will you leave the religion of your father, your fathers, your ancestors? And in the end, Abu Talib died and his last breath was to say, Bal ala millati Abdul Muttalib. Rather, I am on the religion of Abdul Muttalib. And that shows you how strong a person's reputation, how strongly a person's reputation can prevent them from practicing Islam. What did Abu Talib have to fear? He believed Islam was the right religion. He believed Islam was the right religion. And he was dying. His deathbed. What, what, yeah, it's not like anyone is going to insult him after that. The only thing he has to do is say, La ilaha illallah, he's going to Jannah. He's going to Jannah. He just has to say, La ilaha illallah. And he only has one breath left anyway. It's not like someone is going to say after that, or oh, Abu Talib make fun of him or do something to him. But all because of that reputation and what people will think of him. And his last breath is, I die upon the religion of Abdul Muttalib. And that made his death even harder for the Prophet ﷺ because it wasn't a death upon Iman and Islam. It was a death upon Kufr. And the death of Khadija, of course, you know, to lose your wife is a huge, huge thing. But to lose your wife in the circumstances the Prophet ﷺ is in, he's just lost his uncle, he's tried to give da'wah to him and he hasn't accepted. Uh, he loses his wife who is really 
the one support that has been there since the first revelation. You know, nobody was there before Khadija. Khadija was the first one, radiallahu anha, when the Prophet ﷺ was scared by what had happened to him with Jibreel, when he said to her, cover me, cover me. Subhanallah, Khadija was there from the very beginning. And the situation is not fixed. It's getting worse. The situation in Makkah is worse. The torture of the Muslims, the pain, the problems they're having. And the main comfort the Prophet ﷺ had is gone. And the, one of the main protectors and the, and the patrons, the people who are kind of making sure that the situation does not descend to the, the worst of the worst, passes away. Both at the same time. And that's an extremely uh, trying time. But it's a time when this is how Allah strengthened the Prophet and developed him and strengthened his heart to be able to handle these masaib that happened. And close to that was, was the event of Ta'if where the Prophet said, go to Ta'if, perhaps in Ta'if. You know Ta'if is a city which is about... It's a, um, it's, it's, it's a few tens of kilometers away from Makkah. Uh, it's on top of a mountain. Uh, you can you can go there like it doesn't take long by by car. I think it might take like maybe half an hour, maybe a bit longer yani, to reach there. It's not it's not far away from Makkah. So he went to Taif, and he thought perhaps in Taif the people would accept Islam, and that would give him a you know a place, something that they could build upon. But instead, the people rejected him, and they pelted him with stones. And at that event came the, the famous hadith regarding the angel of the mountain who, who came to the Prophet ﷺ while he was resting after the events of Ta'if. And he had been pelted with stones. He had had an even worse re- reception. Uh, the, the issue of Khadija, of Abu Talib. And the angel comes and says that Allah has sent me to give you a choice. If you wish, I will crush these two mountains upon the people of Makkah. Didn't the other prophets have that? Didn't wasn't Nuh one of Ulul Azmi min al-Rusul, one of the people of determination from the messengers? And didn't Nuh make dua? La Rabbi la al-ardi min Oh Allah, don't leave even a single yani, settlement of the disbelievers on this earth. And he did, how many did this? And it's something normal. And the prophets, they, they, when the people disobeyed them and refused to answer them, the people in Makkah have refused, the people in Taif have refused. Okay, that's it. The angel of the mountains will simply take the two mountains on the, on the sides of Makkah, and Makkah is gone. And I get, the angel gave him a choice. He said, Allah has given you a choice. It's not like one is wajib, one is, you know disliked one is you have a choice halal halal you have a choice if you wish I will take these mountains and crush your people and if you wish we leave them the Prophet said leave them because perhaps Allah will bring out from their loins a people who will worship Allah alone or he said a people who will say la ilaha illallah and he look at the vision of the Prophet He said, even if these people don't become Muslim Perhaps one of their children will say La ilaha illallah And this is one of the things that raises him above the other messengers Because when the other messengers were given this choice The people were destroyed Nuh said, 
Rabbi la tadhar ala al-ardi min al-kafirin atayyara. And so on. But when the Prophet ﷺ was given the choice to make dua for his people to be destroyed, or was given the choice to ask for his people to be destroyed, he didn't take it. Perhaps Allah will bring out from their offspring a people who will worship Allah alone. And then the Sheikh goes on to mention a number of different uh, narrations as to whether Khadija died. But the, the well, when, when Khadija died, yani three day, whether she died three days after. Or, but the well-known opinion is that Khadija died three days after Abu Talib. And this was known as Am Al-Huzn, the year of sadness. The Prophet ﷺ didn't call this the year of sadness. The Prophet ﷺ yani, dealt with it with sabr and uh, and uh, rida, contentment, as you would expect. But the people of Sirah named it the year of sadness because of the number of calamities that happened in it. So what was the year, what was the year that was known as the year of sadness? The, the ninth year after the bi'tha, after the sending of the Prophet Sallallahu Jinnu nasibina wa'adu fa'lama Wa'ba'da khamsin After 50 50 what? 50 days? No, 50 years of, From his birth So now we went Because the poet, he has to make the poem rhyme So sometimes he uses If you hear him use 6 and 7 and 8 So that's after the The, the prophethood and if you hear him use 40 and 35 and 50, this is after his birth. So 50, 50 years. وَرُبْعٍ Meaning a quarter of a year. Any three. So 50 years and three months. The jinn of Nasibin became Muslim. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ was sent to the incense of the jinn. He was sent to mankind and he was sent to the jinn. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he said that a group of the jinn of Nasibin, and in some narrations it's mentioned what an excellent group of people they are. What an excellent group of jinn they are from Nasibin. Uh, anhum. Uh, they became Muslim uh, As uh, Ibn al-Jawzi, he said, when the Prophet ﷺ reached 50 years and three months, a group of the jinn of Nasibin came to him and they accepted Islam. When they came to him, as uh, Iraqi said in his poetry, in uh, Al-Fiyat Sirah, Al-Iraqi has a, a thousand line poetry of, uh, for Sirah, which you might want to memorize after you've done this hundred lines, inshallah. Uh, Al-Iraqi, he said, وَبَعْدَ أَنْ مَضَتْ لَهُ خَمْسُونَ وَرُبْعُ عَامٍ جَاءُهُ يَسْعَوْنَ 
جِنُّ نَصِيبِينَ لَهُ وَكَانَ يَقْرَأُ فِي صَلَاتِهِ قُرْآنَ بِنَخْلَةٍ فَاسْتَمَعُوا وَأَسْلَمُوا وَرَجَعُوا فَأَنْذَرُوا قَوْمَهُمْ He said, after 50 years and a quarter of a year, there came a group of jinn of nasibin. And when they came to the Prophet ﷺ, he was reading the Qur'an in his salah. He was reading the Qur'an in his salah by a date palm tree. So they listened to this Qur'an and they became Muslim and they returned to their people to warn them. And this was after the Prophet ﷺ went to Ta'if. As Ibn Kathir said in his tafsir, Muhammad ibn Ishaq mentioned from Yazid ibn Ruman, from Muhammad ibn Ka'b ibn al-Quradi, the story of the Prophet ﷺ going to Ta'if and making, giving them da'wah. And he mentioned the story, uh, and he mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ made this dua, Allahumma ilayka ashku da'fa quwwati wa qillata hilati. O Allah, to you I complain of the weakness of my strength and my lack of, any, maybe you can say, uh, my lack of options. Maybe an okay translation for that would be my lack of, my lack of, 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 of options, my lack of, I don't find that I, I don't seem to, to have the ability for something to, to, to be able to, to change or to change something. Uh, and this is a long dua. Uh, and when he had left Ta'if, so Ta'if, this is the Ta'if happens in the beginning of this, you know, the beginning of this tenth year. When he had left uh, Ta'if, he recited these ayat uh, from the Quran, and the jinn of Nasibin heard him. So the jinn of Nasibin happened on the way back from uh, at Ta'if. Uh, and Nasibin is a, a country or a city uh, which lies on the border between Turkey and Syria. Uh, and they returned and they taught their people. Um, they, 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 uh, as Allah Azza wa Jal said in Surah Al-Ahqaf, وَإِذْ صَرَفْنَا إِلَيْكَ نَثَرًا مِنَ الْجِنِّ يَسْتَمِعُونَ يَسْتَمِعُونَ الْقُرْآنِ فَلَمَّا حَضَرُوهُ قَالُوا أَنْصِتُوا Surah Al-Ahqaf, ayah number 29. When we made a group of the jinn, and he come to you and they listen to the Qur'an, and when they attended it, they said, be silent. And they said to each other, be silent. And when the Prophet ﷺ finished his prayer, they returned to their people as warners. And this is an evidence that the Prophet ﷺ was sent uh, as a messenger to the men and to the jinn, salawatullahi And it's also an evidence that among the jinn are believers. From us are believers and from us are the rebellious disbelievers. And whoever becomes Muslim, they are the ones who have They've chosen the right way. They've, they've, they've gone out and selected the right path.
ثم على سودة أمضى عقده في رمضان ثم كان بعده عقد ابنة الصديقة في الشوال في شف ثم عقد عقد ابن عقد ابنة الصديقة عقد ابنة الصديق في شو في شوالي في شوالي like that then he comes to talk about the marriage of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to Sauda and to Aisha radiyallahu anhuma it's narrated that one of the female companions and again it should be in my head but the name has gone out of my head temporarily Khawl I think Khawla radiyallahu anha but I'm gonna like it's temporarily gone out of my head that she was or she had suggested to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that he should get married so this is now in Ramadan it said that it was two years before the Hijrah and it said three years before the Hijrah so either in the tenth year or in the eleventh year in Ramadan and Khawla radiallahu ta'ala anha as I remember she had said to the Prophet that O Messenger of Allah why don't you remarry because now Khadija had died uh, either a year or two years prior to that, according to the difference of opinion. Either a year or two years. Khadija had died. And the mashhur is, uh, is uh, that it was in the tenth year, in the same year as this, uh, the jinn of Nasibin. Why don't you remarry? The Prophet ﷺ said to her, Would you suggest that I marry a virgin? Or would you suggest that... Or he said, A virgin or a previously married woman? The woman replied to him, If you wish a virgin and if you wish a previously married woman, which, which, you, which you want to marry, you can marry. Like, the Prophet ﷺ said, Who would you suggest... From, and if I were to choose a, if I were to choose to marry a virgin, who would you suggest? Or he said, if I were to choose to marry a previously married woman, who would you suggest? She said, Sauda. Because Sauda, radiallahu ta'ala anha, she said that Sauda has believed in you. She's, you know, she, she believed in you. She accepted Islam. She's been following you. And she doesn't have a husband, uh, so why don't you marry Sauda? Bint radiallahu ta'ala anha. And he said, and if I were to marry a virgin, and she said, the daughter of the most beloved of the people to you. The daughter of the most beloved of the people to you. So the Prophet said, in this uh, narration, go and give, or go and start the process. You know the khitbah, the the uh, the um, uh, 
what's the word? Not proposal. Yeah, proposal will do. And he go and give my proposal to Sauda and to Aisha. With regard to Sauda, I don't know much more about what happened with the narration after that. But with regard to Aisha, the narration continues that she went to the house of uh, Umr Umman, uh, who was the mother of Aisha radiallahu anhuma, and she said, "Glad tidings to you. Today is a day like you know you have never had a day like this before." She said, "What is this?" She said, "The Prophet has sent me to ask for the proposal of." Uh, to make his proposal to, uh, to marry Aisha. So Umrumman, she said, wait until Abu Bakr comes back. And because we have to ask him what he says. So Abu Bakr came back. And at first Abu Bakr was not sure about it. Why was Abu Bakr not sure? Did it have anything to do with the age of Aisha? Nothing to do with the age of Aisha at all. He was not sure because he was... Um, the Prophet ﷺ used to consider Abu Bakr as a brother and he used to consider him to be my brother. Like they were the closest of the people together and it was like he was his blood brother. So Abu Bakr didn't know if it would be halal for him to marry Aisha because of the fact that Aisha is the daughter of his brother. And as you know, the daughter of your blood brother is not uh, halal for you to marry your niece, the daughter of your blood brother. So Abu Bakr went to the Prophet to ask. The Prophet said, As for you, you are my brother in Islam. And you are my brother, but you're my brother in Islam. And when someone is a brother in Islam, the rules of uh, these things don't apply. He said, And as for Aisha, she is halal for me to marry. So Abu Bakr was very pleased at the news and he agreed for Aisha to marry the Prophet um, Aisha was, was uh, at that age six years old, so this would have been a contract rather than a, a live-in marriage. Because she was too young for a live-in marriage. So it would have been a contract, like as in the nikah, but without living uh, together. And it was agreed that, of course, once the hijrah came about, that Aisha would live with the Prophet ﷺ when she was mentally and physically ready. And that is something which is the, it is, continues today to be the standard by which the Muslims rule marriages. And, and I just want to talk about this because, you know, even though I'm not doing great at getting through the poem, but anyways, and he, I, like, I, I want to talk about this because it's, for me it's important. Uh, and that is that uh, people say or people talk about the age at which people can get married. In reality, Islam, first of all, generally, in a general sense, Islam considers marriage to be between adults in general. Because marrying someone who is younger than the age of puberty is, a, is at the very least disliked. Because at the end of the day, the person doesn't really have a proper choice. Like the girl doesn't really have a proper choice because she, in the first place, doesn't really have the knowledge and the ability to be able to choose whether she's happy with that spouse or not. However, in certain circumstances, that's not an issue. Like marrying the Prophet No one's going to doubt is Aisha going to get to, you know, like 15 years old, she's going to like him or not. And there's no doubt about, there's no doubt about it. 
uh, and this was a marriage that was made by Allah as it's narrated that an angel came with something covered in a silk uh, cloth and when he removed the cloth it was the Prophet saw Aisha and it was said this is your bride in the, this world and in the hereafter so the marriage was made by Allah and it was decreed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. so there's no issue here about the fact that she's too young to choose because Allah has chosen for her there's no issue about that but the issue is at what age can the couple live as a married couple and Islam doesn't put an age on that and that makes a lot of sense because if you think about it each country or civilization or circumstance should be taken individually there are people who used to marry in England even a hundred years ago at 13 years old there are people who used to marry in or still marry today in places like Yemen at 10 years old 11 years old there are people who marry at 20 years old there are people who think 20 is too young Islam doesn't say any of those it doesn't say your right your right it says look to get married you have to be mentally and physically ready that's it if you're mentally and physically ready you can get married now you guys know that girls are not the same in their body shape in their uh, maturity and especially in the olden days and in the days before like in the in the olden days and even today you get a girl subhanallah she's not wearing hijab you you cover your eyes you look down you say, subhanallah she says oh she's only eight she's only nine because she's like she's a big she has she's a big girl she has a like she's grown a lot she's had a growth spurt and you think that she's maybe older than that you think she's 12 or you think she's 13 and you're like subhanallah why you're not wearing hijab or she's only eight and that tells you that you have to be careful with your daughters that you don't just wait till they're 15 yani if they are developing in a way that should that is yani, uh, showing their maturity early you have to put the hijab on them and the abaya on them even if they're eight years old even if they're nine years old and ideally before that to get them used to it but you have to keep an eye because the girl they don't grow the same and you might see a girl who's 13 14 she looks like she's 10 and you might see a girl who is nine or ten she looks like she's 15 and so there's no like Islam says it's about mentally and physically being ready that's it now these days yeah any 16 you're not mentally and physically ready well, especially not mentally ready at 16 Allah and for most people most people we're not mature we live in you know like what's the word like you know cotton wool lives where everything you know if the AC goes off for 10 minutes we are acting like yani, the, the, the dunya is about to end yani, like we are living in this like very you know cotton wool life wrapped up in cotton wool those people yani, subhanallah even even a hundred years ago you had 10 year old girls 12 year old girls who were the main carer for their family at 10 years old at 12 years old even closer than that you people can think if you from other countries from places like india places like you know you go back to those countries like 100 years ago you see girls at very young ages getting married even if i look at the generation above our generation just my like for example my mother-in-law whatever got married at i don't know like maybe 15 or whatever any 14 15 something like that and so the point is that islam doesn't come along and say you got to be 21 to get married why 
You've got to be 16. Why? Why can't you be 15 and a half? Why can't you be 15 and three quarters? Why can't you be 17? What's the, who put this number 16 and said for everyone in the world, 16 is the age you can get married? Even in the UK now, you can get married at 16 with your parents' permission. And 16 is the age of consent, for whatever that means. That's a 16. In some countries still in the world today, the age of consent is puberty. There are still countries in the world today where the age of consent is puberty. And there are countries where the age of consent is 12 or 13. The point is, these numbers mean nothing. 12 is too young for me, in my opinion. 12 is too young. 13 is too young. 14 is too young for the overwhelming majority of people in the world. But Islam says it's your society that should set the age. Not some fake number that is just like dropped on there. You need to be 18 to get married. Why? Why can't you be 17? What happened when you're 18? Like something like Allah just gave you wisdom that you never had like one week ago. Yani? Like the week that you were 17, you were jahil. And the week that you were 18, you were suddenly mature and responsible. Nah, Islam said when you are mentally and physically ready. As for making the nikah before you are mentally and physically ready, then this is makruh according to the majority of the scholars. And to make the, the nikah before you are, yani not that living together, but living together is not permissible before you are mentally and physically ready. But the issue is making the nikah. And what we call nikah sagheera, marrying a very young girl. And making a nikah with a very young girl, then this is something which is makruh in the majority of circumstances. The ulama makes some exceptions. From those exceptions is when uh, a father maybe fears for his daughter. Like for example, what are you going to do if there's a war going on and the women are being snatched, the girl, young girls are being snatched and uh, abused by soldiers and so on and so forth. And, and you don't have, like you're an old man, you have just a one young daughter. She's 12. What are you going to do? Isn't it, doesn't it make more sense to get her nikah done and to give her into the custody of a young man who can take care of her rather than to leave her to that. But no, 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 she's not 16. Okay, she's not 16, we may as well throw it out. Just let her get attacked by the soldiers instead because she's not 16. And subhanAllah, look at the foolishness of what these people say. They put an age as if what happens in America should be applied to the whole world and there's nothing, no difference anywhere else in the world. This is, their, their, this is their kibr, their, their pride and their arrogance of these people. That they believe that what happens in their country, and let's be honest, in their country now, the average age of uh, yani, the first uh, time of intimacy for young uh, children is something like 12 years old in the UK right now. So we should apparently uh, be approved of that, but we should apparently not approve of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi living with Aisha at nine years old even though we, there's nothing wrong, apparently, in their eyes, with a 12-year-old deciding to have an intimate relationship. You see the batil of what these people are upon. There's no justice, yani. Subhanallah. So Islam set these things. We don't normally do a nikah for a girl who's under the age of puberty because she cannot decide for herself what she wants to do. We don't normally do this. There are exceptions, and one of them is obviously marrying the Prophet ﷺ. There is no issue there about her choosing. But Aisha didn't live with the Prophet ﷺ immediately. She lived with him three years later. After the hijrah to Medina, she uh, began to live with him because at that age, she was physically and she was 
mentally ready to be a wife to the Prophet And Aisha herself never disputes this. In fact, Aisha herself defends the rights of the young girls. And this is something you can hear from Aisha. She will say, you should give young girls right to play. You should do this. And Aisha defends the rights of the young girls. And Aisha tells people how her marriage was. She never says, you know, like, you shouldn't. She never even, of course, she will never say, I shouldn't have married at that age. But she doesn't even tell the companions, don't marry your daughters at that age. Or don't marry girls at that age. She just says, give them, you know, give them their time. Give them their time to play and develop and so on. So, the Aisha herself had no issues with this. Abu Bakr had no issues with this. Her mother, Umruman, had no issues with this. The society had no issues with this. The enemies of the Prophet ﷺ had no issues with this. But the person who has an issue with this is someone living in the US or the UK whose 12-year-old son is doing Allah knows what, who started watching Allah knows what at 10 years old or 7 years old or 8 years old, who is telling our Prophet how he should have behaved 1400 years ago. And that is enough yani, like, to explain the foolishness of what these people claim and what these people believe. And as for the Muslims, these are worse. Allah, the worst of them are the ones who do this from among the Muslims. Yani, the worst of them, yani, in my eyes, in this topic, the worst of them are the Muslims who then argue that Aisha was 18 or 19. Or <laughs> Aisha says... I got married to the Prophet ﷺ when I was six years old and he consummated the marriage at nine in Sahih al-Bukhari from the narration of Aisha herself. What Aisha, you, you know what age Aisha was and she doesn't? Then Aisha, we know what age she died. We know what age she was when the Prophet ﷺ died. She was around 18 years old when the, when the, when the Prophet ﷺ died. Prophet ﷺ was in Medina for 10 years. Work out the maths. I mean, how could she have been married him at 14 and when, she, when he died she was 18 or 19? How, like, the, the figures just don't... But these Muslims, like, they can't bring it into themselves. And they, they, they've drunk so much from the cup of Western culture and they've become so absorbed by what Western culture tells them is right that now they cannot accept the Prophet ﷺ married Aisha at that age. Even though Aisha says... Even though we know after that the Prophet ﷺ married all of these other uh, women. When did he get time to do that? If he married Aisha, we know that Aisha was his second wife after Khadija. Yani Khadija, Sauda, Aisha. And we know that after Aisha, the, 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 uh, the other women that the Prophet ﷺ married... Where did, if Aisha was 14, where did the time get to, to marry Hafsa and yani, it, uh, Safiya and so on and so forth? It doesn't, there's no, like, none of it makes any sense. Aisha herself reports what happened in various battles and various events when she was living with the Prophet ﷺ that happened in the first days of the Hijrah. They say, no, no, actually, what happened was Aisha was actually older when she made Hijrah. So now they made it that Aisha was born before Islam. And this is the only way they could do it, is they made Aisha be born before Islam so that Aisha was, you know, maybe 14 when she did her nikah and she was like 18 or 19 when she went to live with the Prophet ﷺ and then that's all politically correct now um, and so on. But it doesn't, none of the narrations, not a single narration makes any sense. Nothing.
But the Muslims, yani, there still are people who try to apologize and make excuses for what is narrated in the Sahih. And this is yani, something quite ridiculous. Yani. Rather, if you only looked a hundred years ago, and in fact, if you even look at the people who wrote biographies from the non-Muslims about the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu uh, like let's say prior to the early 1900s Those people, the non-Muslims who wrote biographies None of them have any comment on the age of Aisha Like the people who wrote biographies of him in you know, 1800s, 1700s From the non-Muslims They have no comment Because even among them it was normal And even then we say And I'll finish with this point Even after that what do we say? Do we advise anyone to go marry a nine-year-old today? Nobody. We never said anyone should go and marry a nine-year-old today. We said that you can't put an age on something that changes from girl to girl and country to country and climate to climate and person to person. The youngest age that a girl can have menses at is nine years old. And medically, you can check that on Wikipedia if you want, that the youngest age medically recognized age that a girl can get her menses and become an adult in Islam is nine years old. But she can't marry till she's 16 or 18. It's just like, these are just figures. Allah never sent any authority. Islam doesn't put a low age or a high age. Islam doesn't say marry a girl at 10 or marry a girl at 50. Islam says it depends on the girl and the circumstances and the situation of the people. And that is the best answer. That there's no right or wrong, it depends on what is right for that society and that people. So in our society, if the ruler says, you can't marry till you're 18, Jazakallah khairan, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe we, maybe we can argue for 16 or 17, but okay, it makes a lot of sense. In our time, with our people, with our daughters and our sons, it makes a lot of sense. But we shouldn't be so naive to believe that the rest of the world and the rest of history was like we are uh, today in our situation that we're in today uh, and inshallah ta'ala we've done like a third of the poem so I have to make a decision now uh, probably what we'll try and do is go for a half and maybe we'll have to do another half in the next module because I, re- I promise I'll finish it so I'm really dedicated to finish it so probably in the next module what we will do is we'll do, a, we will, we'll do the, the other half because I can't go any quicker than I, well I can go quicker than I'm going but that's like what Allah has made easy and Allah knows best. So inshallah, we'll be concluding next week. Inshallah, up to uh, half of the poem. And then the other half, but you still have to memorize the whole poem. And then the other half, inshallah, uh, we'll complete at the beginning of the next module. Bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. And Allah knows best. Wassalatu wassalam. Anabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.